Good morning, everybody. It is great to worship with you today. For those of you who are new here, my name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor. And it is a great privilege of mine to open the scriptures regularly in this church family and to teach. And so let's pray together, ask for God's help uh, for me as I teach, for you as we receive together what he has for us. Let's pray together. Father, may we meditate on the words and the reality uh, that we just heard in that video. And may we be found as a people who are willing to give ourselves to you and give of ourselves to you. Lord, as we turn our attention to the scriptures today, we pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to clearly understand uh, how this message in Malachi chapter 1 applies to us. Give us hearts and minds that are soft and receptive. Give us a clarity of thought as we engage in the text. May your spirit freely reign both in encouragement and in conviction, we ask. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to change us. Change us more and more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And in his name we ask, amen. Where are you on the apathy scale? Apathy can be defined as the absence of passion, indifference. Apathy is a lack of concern for something that should move you. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being apathetic, spiritually speaking, toward God, 10 being passionate about pursuing God and your relationship with God, where are you on the apathy scale? Sometimes things aren't going great, and things aren't going bad. Sometimes things are just okay. And when there isn't much excitement on one end or incredible turmoil on the other end, there's a great temptation in our lives for apathy to set in. Apathy can happen in all types of relationships or activities. It can happen in your job. It can happen in your marriage, it can happen in your family, and it can happen in your relationship with God. You know, I, I think most often that the scriptures use language to describe our sort of loving relationship with God in terms of either the relationship between a parent and a child, God is our father after all, or very often in the minor prophets we see the analogy of a relationship between a husband and a wife. And I think about uh, the young man who was telling his girlfriend just how much he loved her. And after going on for some time, he concluded, I don't have a Cadillac like Harry. I don't have a yacht like Harry. But darling, I do love you. To which the woman responds, yeah, I love you too. But tell me more about this Harry you're talking about. The profession of love met with <laughs> an equally difficult expression of apathy. Today, we start a new series in the book of Malachi, and we're calling this series Renewing Faithfulness. As you know, Malachi is that book it, tucked away at the ed, end of the Old Testament. It's not taught on a whole lot. 
But in this book, we see God engaging his people, a group of people, Israel, who are in varied places on the apathy scale, as we call it. And the struggles that they are going through that indicate their apathy, or in even some cases their rebellion, are struggles that are very pertinent to us today. I think as we go through this book over the coming weeks, we'll see areas, we'll be poked and prodded in ways that are surprisingly relevant for us today. And the message of the book is very simply this. Return to me. Turn from apathy and come back to me. Here's why, here's how. Renew your faithfulness. Open your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is found on page 801 of that Pew Bible. And this morning, we introduced the book with just five short verses. As you turn there, let me set the stage. The book of Malachi is what is referred to as one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. It's minor because it's short in nature. And yet, here, God prophesies to his people, Israel, of the Old Testament. And in doing so, it's important when we look at the prophetical books to realize a couple of different things. Number one, the message in this book is for you personally. But that's really where we most often default. I mean, we live in an individualistic society in that sense, and so we often want to apply God's word just to me. But this message is not just to you personally. This message is for God's people corporately. And so as you're challenged, be thinking about what this means for you and your family life and your personal life, but also be thinking about what does it mean to renew faithfulness for all of us as Old North Church, because that's the aim of a book like the book of Malachi. And in this book, we see six different accusations, if you will, against God and his responses. And today we start by way of introduction with just the first one. This is what it says in Malachi chapter 1. Please follow with me. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says... We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. What a wonderful opening statement. At this time in history, Israel has experienced a wide 
range of ups and downs. But God has been present in every one of them. The book is introduced as an oracle of the word of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, his covenant name to his people. He has promised things to them. And in his promises to them, he has promised to be near them. And we see this nearness displayed throughout the Old Testament through this covenant relationship. His presence is displayed really in three ways. And it's pretty consistent throughout the Old Testament. We see that this God is a God who saves his people. This God is a God who speaks to his people. And this God is a God who expresses his love to his people. Think about those three things with me. God saves his people. Whether we speak about the account of God saving Abram and Sarah from foreign kings, or saving his son Isaac from the sacrifice on the altar, or saving Moses from certain death in the Nile, or saving Joshua and the Israelites in the new promised land, or whether it was God saving King David and the Israelites from Goliath and the Philistines, or saving the kingdom from the countless number of invaders throughout the centuries, or the most defining part of the history of Old Testament Israel, that the God of heaven and earth would save his people out of the land of Egypt and bring them to a land that he had promised them. And he would do so miraculously through plagues and through the parting of a sea and through leading them through the wilderness. Again and again and again, God shows this people That he rescues them. And he rescues them because they are his. Not only does this God save his people, he speaks to his people. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. Despite what some might believe, God is not some cosmic creator who creates and then just sits back and watches it all unfold. Nor does he just speak once and expect you to fully get it and then observe as we fumble about in our existence. No, God speaks to his people. Again and again and again. And he speaks to them as a sign of his nearness to them. So he saves them, he speaks to them, and he does these two things throughout throughout the course of history because he loves them. And he expresses this love to them in a variety of ways throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 103, we see it expressed as steadfast love. It's unwavering in its nature. It's a love that is closely related to his mercy and to his grace, He says this, 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, Psalm 103. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he repay us, or nor will he keep, us, keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I have loved you, says the Lord God. What a tremendous opening line to the book of Malachi. But as we turn to the very next sentence in verse 2, for as much as God's expression toward his people is amazing. His people's expression toward God is equally discouraging. But you say, verse 2, how have you loved us? Israel's actions, their words, their disposition, was one that communicated to God, yeah, sure, sure you love us. How does a person get to that place? Well, at this time in history, we were four to five hundred years before the coming of Jesus. Israel had rebelled against God some one to two hundred years before. He judged them as a nation. He allowed them to be captured by Babylon, and they were brought into exile or captivity. And for a fairly short season of history, life was exceptionally difficult for them. Now you can imagine your whole nation being carried off to someplace else. For those families who had soldiers in them, life was exceptionally hard. But really, that passed fairly quickly. Babylon was captured by another nation. Israel was allowed to go home, back to where they came from, and life was beginning to be reestablished again. By the time Malachi is written, Israel had enjoyed some years of stability. Captivity was over. The economy was stabilizing. Life was back to normal and fairly consistent. And the accusatory question that they raised toward God, how have you loved us? Or maybe with a better tone, how have you loved us? can really only be described by one word, I think. Apathy. Remember, apathy is indifference or a lack of passion towards something that should move you. God, again, had rescued them, and yet they were apathetic toward him. And their indifference... And in this indifference, they were regularly searching for a middle ground. A middle ground between all-out rebellion or just satisfying their personal desires and, on the other end, following him wholeheartedly and faithfully. They were looking for something in the middle to please their personal desires but not to hijack their life completely. 
And as I began to think about how Israel found themselves in this place of spiritual apathy toward God, I began to think about how we find ourselves in that same place. If you're here today and you've been walking with God for any amount of time, surely at some point you've experienced some level of apathy, spiritually speaking. Because we do, I think, in all of our relationships to varying degrees. But how do you get to that place? How do you avoid sliding to that place? We've seen it before. Maybe some of us are here today and we're experiencing it personally. We know someone who used to be really serious about their relationship with the Lord. Their desires were to pursue him, to know him, to please him. And their actions, the way they lived their life, displayed those desires, that reality. You didn't uh, know them at first, but as they became involved in the local church, you noticed that they were there weekly. And their kids were involved in programs on Wednesday nights, and they became involved in small groups, and, and they were invested in the lives of other people, not just sort of the passing, hey, how's it going on Sunday morning, but no, they really got to know other Christians and invested in them. And as you took a look back and you looked at their life, you'd say, spiritually, wow, these things are really good for these people. As time went on, you noticed that they sort of fell out of the habit of going to that small group. But it was still great to worship with them in that same pew on Sunday. Because so many of you like to sit in that same pew. And you'd catch up with them in the coffee hour at Common Grounds after the service. You didn't really think anything about it, but over time, their participation in the life of the church became a little bit more sporadic. You didn't think it was that big of a deal, but what was happening on the inside was the beginning of apathy starting to form. And as time went on, you noticed that a periodic missing a week here or there became fairly consistent, so they were participating in worship with the church family just twice a month. And as a result, after a little while, they felt disconnected from a number of the people here, and they started to feel disconnected from what God was doing himself. And so as time went on, twice a month became once every couple of months. And you'd see them from time to time at the coffee shop or in the grocery store, and you might say something like, hey, Joe, how's it going? I mean, I haven't seen you in a while. What happened, man? You used to be such a huge part of our church family and what God was doing in our church. What, what's going on? And they say, yeah, I'm not really sure. I guess I'm just not really into it that much anymore. And he said, oh, okay, okay. Well, are you going to do a, another church someplace? No. I'm just kind of doing my own thing, they might say. And then it hits you. Apathy had taken over. Apathy toward God. Apathy is 
the absence of passion. It's indifference. It's a lack of concern for something that should move you. And when spiritual apathy takes hold of your life, you look at your present situation, and when posed with the idea of God's love, it becomes very easy for you to say, eh, how has God loved us? I don't feel it. I don't see it regularly. What has he done for me lately? How has God loved me? And this is precisely where Israel finds itself. That's precisely where some of us find ourselves as well. And maybe even some of us are at different stages of sliding toward a greater level of apathy, movement in the wrong direction. I mean, you can come to church weekly and still struggle with spiritual apathy on the inside. And so, in many ways, this is what this book of Malachi is all about. And so I ask you the question again, where are you on the apathy scale? One being apathetic, ten being passionate toward God. Where are you? How do you know? Well, I think there are a lot of different indicators. But let me give you just three this morning. Apathy test, number one. How do you know if you're apathetic? Well, if you regularly find yourself, yourself trying to find that middle ground between sold-out faithfulness and all-out rebellion, you're probably struggling with apathy. Let me explain. There are a lot of sins that we can commit in this world that will hijack our lives outwardly. And we're smart enough to know that we probably shouldn't do those types of things. We probably shouldn't show up to work drunk. We probably shouldn't cheat on our spouse. We probably shouldn't embezzle a ton of money. But there are plenty of sins that we can commit or that we can excuse in the quietness of our own home or in our interpersonal relationships that aren't going to hijack our lives on the outside, but they're still rebellious in some way, but they're still personally, they, they meet some kind of personal desire that we might have. And we search those out. We become pretty good at excusing those types of sins as a pattern or a habit of life. And if you find yourself there, somewhere trying to find that middle ground, I, I, I can give God the lip service and even do certain things, and I'm not going to do those sins that hijack my lives, but I don't care about the stuff in the middle, chances are you are apathetic spiritually. Here's another indicator that you struggle with apathy. If you find yourself drifting away from the activities that will help you grow spiritually because the person or program that tethered you to those activities is now gone, you may be struggling with spiritual apathy. I've met plenty of people over the years that once their favorite church program is no longer in existence, they begin to drift once their friend moves away to another geographical locale, all of a sudden their participation in the things of God is not that important. Or a warning for many of you parents out there, 
plenty of people who have children in children's ministry and then on into high school ministry. And once Sammy and Jane go away to college, mom and dad all of a sudden start to drift because the thing that tethered them to the activities of spiritual growth that they participated was really their kids. And if you find yourself in that kind of drift, you're probably struggling with apathy. Here's another one. Another indicator you're struggling with apathy apathy is that if the scriptures aren't motivating you to pursue deeper levels of relationship with God or desires to follow him. If you read the Bible or hear God's word spoken and you really just kind of say, oh, that was really nice spiritual fodder for the day, but it doesn't demand anything of me, (laughs) chances are you're struggling with apathy. God is calling his people in Malachi, and he is calling us as his people today, to renew our faithfulness to him. So if you are struggling with apathy today, my encouragement for you would be to dial in over the next coming weeks as we go through Malachi together. But the first shift that needs to happen is a shift in our thinking or our perception. And that is, The first move out of apathy is to realize just how significant God's love is for you. We see that right here in Malachi chapter 1. I love you, says God. How have you loved us? The accusation comes. And in verses uh, 2 and on, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered and we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'm going to tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry with forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. The proof of God's love to his people and the proof of God's love to you is that he chose them and he chooses you. God could have chosen to draw close to any person or people group in the history of the world. He chose specifically to draw near to Israel. And the claim or the ground here that, remember Jacob and Esau, is a claim that is talked about multiple times throughout the Bible You remember the story, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, Esau the oldest, Jacob the younger. The oldest is supposed to be the one who's blessed, supposed to receive the inheritance, supposed to have the honor. And God chose Jacob, the younger, before the boys were born, before either of them did anything. He said, Jacob will be the father of these 12 tribes of Israel. Fast forward some hundreds of years, the people that came from Jacob are Israel. The people that came from Esau, his brother, are Edom, or the Edomites. And by all outward appearances, they're similar. They live in a similar region. They're neighboring nations. They've both been brought into captivity in Babylon. They've both been released. From the outside eyes, they 
deserve the same. They have similar standing, similar lifestyles. Not one deserves more than the other. But here's the reality. God loved Jacob, and therefore he loves Jacob's people. And he hates Esau, and therefore he hates Esau's people. The people of Jacob, Israel, has a hope and a future. But as for Edom, he says, they will build, but I will tear down. They will be called a wicked people. Why? Because God loves his people. It's just as easy as that. And his love is displayed in his choice. To be sovereign, to be God, (laughs) means that you're independent. To be God means that you're free to act independently of the desires or the actions of other people. And God chose them because he loves them. Through all their ups and downs, through all their rebellions, through their faithfulness, God never stopped loving them. And so he gave them a hope and a future. And this is the reality for all of those who are God's people today. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus is now in a similar but a new covenant relationship with God. They've arrived at that place through God's elective choice to love them. And the primary difference between the people of God today and any other people in the world is the same difference between Israel and Edom in Malachi chapter 1. The people of God today have a hope and they have a future. And those who aren't the people of God do not. So from a human side of Malachi 1, we see the main point of this passage. God's love is displayed in your eternal relationship with him, not just your temporary circumstances. Israel is looking at what God has done for them lately. God, what have you done for me lately? And they're saying, how have you loved us as a result? And that is so easy for us to do. Now, for Israel, we're talking about a period of 50 years. God, what have you done for me lately? We know in our fast-paced society and short attention spans, we could probably think about it in terms of a period of 50 minutes. (laughs) God, what have you done for me today? And it's easy to say, God, well, you haven't done anything for me today, so how have you loved me? It's easy to say, when things get hard and your basement floods because your sump pump fails while you're on vacation very recently in the middle of December, how have you loved me? Or when your finances are tight or when you have tension in your relationships Or you watch your elderly parents as their health begins to fail. It's easy to say, yeah, sure you love me. I don't see any evidence of it lately. But God's love is displayed in your eternal relationship with him. Not just your temporary circumstances. Or maybe when things are steady. Nothing's too great, nothing's too bad, and apathy begins to set in. You're in a rhythm, a pattern of life. It's fine. But you grow 
or slide toward the apathetic. And it's easy to say, eh, sure, I guess you love me. But God's love is displayed in your eternal relationship with him, not just your temporary circumstances. Now, don't misunderstand me. He cares about your temporary circumstances. He cares very much about the details of your life. But don't let the ebbs and flows of that reality change your perception of his love. His love is so much bigger than your immediate circumstance. His love is so much bigger than giving you everything you want in the moment that you want it. For Israel and for us, the eternal love of God is displayed chiefly, of course, in the coming of his son, Jesus. Some of you are here today and you say, I have some vague notion of my relationship with God, but I want to experience his love. Well, know this. If you want to experience God's love in its fullest extent, that comes through faith in his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Through him, God gives us this eternal standing and relationship. His love is fully displayed. He takes us from ruined sinners and restores us to himself. But this text, this text is not primarily for people in that place. This text is primarily for those of you who have experienced God's love in the past. You've put your faith in his son, Jesus, but now you've grown apathetic. And the first step out of apathy is to recognize more comprehensively God's love for you. As I said earlier in the message, I think there's two main relationship analogies that talk about the love between God and his people. First is that of husband and wife, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But the second is that of a parent and their child. After all, God is our father. I think about the mother who in one of those delicious moments that make a mother what they are, drew her two-year-old daughter close to her and she said in a moment of sweetness, oh, how I love you. And the little girl very much preoccupied with what was happening elsewhere in the moment, drew away and said, yes, I know. And any of you who have children have certainly experienced that. As early as the second year of life, the word is being illustrated. Even a child is known by his doing, (laughs) Proverbs 20, verse 11 says. Donald Barnhouse comments on this reality. And he says, tragedy occurs when someone hears the voice of God saying, as he does from Calvary, and as he does in his word, and as he does from a thousand circumstances in your life, when God says, my child, I love you. And that is answered with indifference that shows that the love is not really reciprocated. Most of life's sadness flows from such an attitude. But if the windows of heaven are opened, when we can learn to feel deeply what it says in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first 
loved us. And so as we start down this new road together, and as we consider that God's love is chiefly displayed in your eternal relationship, not just your temporary circumstances, as we challenge ourselves in our places of apathy as individuals and as a church family, as we look at specific instances as we go through Malachi, let this reality be the undertow of it all. God loves you. Let's pray. Father, your love for us is something that we catch glimpses of. It's something that has become cliche for many of us. It is something that is overwhelming and profound in certain moments. And it's something that we so desperately need to feel and to know and to recognize with greater consistency. God, save us from our apathy, we ask. Compel us toward reciprocating your love to us. Help us to renew faithfulness to you. In this we pray. Amen and amen.